Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. This episode is brought to you by Gilt. So when it comes to building wealth, taxes are such a big part of the strategy. And even if you're already filed, being proactive about this year to lower your future liability is so important. Gelt actually provides a proactive approach to tax strategy, combining innovative technology and expert CPAs by creating personalized tax strategies for your unique financial needs of multiple revenue streams, M&As, restricted stocks, various investments and more. You can keep your hard-earned money. Our, their proprietary platform ultimately gives you the full transparency of your tax management and direct communication with your CPA to reach your financial goals and grow for your wealth faster. So again, you know, if you're interested on this, go to joingelt.com. Uh, and they are actually on the show notes that I'm going to be posting a very special offer for you all that you can actually enjoy. So again, you know, join Gelt. Dot com. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder. You know, he's a founder that has been pushing, you know, his company for a few years now. And unbelievable, the stories that we're going to be learning from him, you know, building, scaling, financing, bootstrapping all the way to, you know, getting their first round in place, having investors pulling out near-death experiences, full of adrenaline. So I think we're going to really enjoy this one and find it quite inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Todd McDonald. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, thanks for having me. So born in Connecticut, you know, what a wonderful state, you know, to be, to be raised, no? So give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Life growing up, I, uh, you know, we actually uh, recently did a, a bit of an executive coaching session. Everyone got to talk about their childhood. It was, it was very therapeutic. And when it came around to me, I said, you know what? I had a great childhood. I lived in a bucolic setting in the middle of Connecticut um, and had about 40 different cousins uh, around me all the time, wandering around, sort of like, kind of like Mayberry, like the, the classic classic story. Um, yeah, so it was, it, was, it was a lot of fun uh, in between Boston and New York. So depending on which side of the fence you're on, you got to either love or hate uh, the Red Sox and the Yankees. So it was a great childhood. Now, in your case, you know, you, you decided to blend economics and political science. Well, that's quite the blend. How did that come about? <laughs> well, I was a, a benefit of a liberal arts education at uh, Colgate University. One thing they don't teach you uh, or they don't tell you about Colgate when you go there, even though they have no finance classes, um, a very large percentage of folks wind up on Wall Street. So I, I stumbled upon uh, the same path as well, starting on Wall Street back in 96, right around the time when I first started on, on the trading desk, people were still smoking and there was probably one computer per three people. Uh, by the time I left that industry, um, definitely the cigarettes were gone and uh, the computers were replacing most of the people as well. Now, in your case, how do you stumble upon trading? Because it sounds like trading, you know, has been and the fintech side of things, you know, has been a, a big one for you. So how do you stumble up, up, upon that thing, that segment? Yeah, so I was uh, quite fortunate to get uh, uh, into a training program at a, at a bank called Standard Chartered. so a big emerging market uh, bank. And, and pretty early on, you get to look across the trading floor and you see who's, who's having a good time, who's, who's, uh, who's really making it happen. And I think more importantly, who got a chance to 
sit sit down on the desk and read the New York Post around three in the afternoon after the trading was <laughs> died down. And I decided pretty early on that's the where I wanted to get to. And um, very fortunate to start right at the same time as the uh, Asian financial crisis. Uh, so um, whether they wanted to or not, they had to throw me into the deep end, which was fantastic. Um, and from there, uh, got to travel around the world, uh, got to live and work in, in Singapore and in London. Um, it was a fantastic experience. Um, it's amazing to be be your own boss every day. You have that P&L staring you in the face. You know it's a good or a bad day. Um, so it's somewhat similar to when you start a company, those highs and lows, those ups and downs, uh, but just a little bit more tangible, I would say, than going from one one good meeting to one bad meeting when you're trying to start a company. Now, in your case, you know, with Standard Charter Bank, you were with them for a long time. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're talking about 14 years or more. So why so long? I mean, what what was that the future that you were living into that was so exciting that kept you sticking around for so long? Well, uh, one secret is that I actually did leave uh, for a period of time. I, I, I left left my job um, and tried to travel the world to see what else was out there. And then and then eventually came back, which gave me a, a great appreciation for 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 that role for the uh, for the industry, um, re-energized me. So after that first six years, I came back for another eight. But towards the end, I'd say w the big part of what made me move on to the next chapter for the, of my career was, I guess, two things. One, getting a little bit of a taste at what I think later was called fintech. Was able to to work on some projects to bring technology to financial markets while while Standard Chartered. Um, and two. Uh, I guess the Wild West mentality of, of FX and emerging markets started to wane a little bit uh, into 2010, 2011. One of the, bit, the advantages of being a trader is you never really had to go to meetings. And in 2011, I kept getting invited to meetings. And every time there was two people invited to those meetings, Dodd and Frank. And so, you know, that sort of uh, regulatory mindset was really starting to put a bit of a pall on that whole industry. So it was time for me to see what else was out there and, and uh, kind of Leaving my job the first time gave me the confidence to leave my job the second time to see what else was out there and see if there was a path to be found, um, trying to bring together an understanding of how markets work, on how finance works, and hopefully an understanding how to apply technology to it. So eventually, Bitcoin and blockchain, you know, comes knocking, you know, into yes. your radar. Uh, yep. And uh, that really was a pivotal moment in your professional career. So how, how do you, wh why did you find, you know, that's so powerful, you know, to the point that uh, perhaps, you know, it, uh, it pushed you in a path that, uh, that you're in now. So part of it was from a trading perspective. The first time I ever stumbled upon uh, Bitcoin, I, I looked at it as probably the most beautiful chart I've ever seen um, of something. <laughs> it was around $150 at the time. And annoyingly, I couldn't figure out how to buy it. This was 2000, February 2013. Uh, things like Coinbase was just starting, and the only way you can really purchase Bitcoin was by meeting someone, you know, arranging to meet somebody on a street corner, which wasn't really uh, what I was into. Um, that forced me to 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 really try and read up on on it and try to figure out what was going on, and that led me down this rabbit hole, which uh, which a lot of people eventually fell down around the technology underneath it, around uh, blockchain technology, the things that it could do. And 2013 is when we I was exploring this was not really a topic that came up that often. <laughs> so uh, it, uh, it definitely would uh, lead to a few puzzled looks when I would bring it up in conversations and meetings. And fortunately, my current business partner, David Rutter, who's uh, you know, CEO and the other co-founder here at R3, um, I was able to, to really uh, sort of, you know, buttonhole him a couple of times to try to Scott describe what was going on within crypto, but more importantly, what, what blockchain technology potentially could mean to things that we knew, which were, which were 
capital markets and investment banking and just, you know, commercial banking generally. So how does uh, one thing led to the next thing, uh, you know, for you guys to get going with R3? I mean, you were a professional, you know, and employed by large corporations you yeah. know, and other companies. And then all of a sudden, you know, like being an entrepreneur, I mean, that's quite uh, scary. Yeah, it's definitely a big change of pace. And I think both, you know, for for David and I and, and the others that were involved at the time, I think we had the benefit of a couple of things. One, we 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 were early to a different point of view that, um, on the space. Two, we tried to kind of start the company backwards. We tried to start with customers first and then and then build a product around them. And then three, we try to take our time and try and build a value prop and try and build a company at, in, a, in a certain pace. I mean, it was definitely a huge change. Uh, we, were, uh, we were working out of a borrowed office. You know, we had to, uh, we had to get out, um, you know, we painted the walls with whiteboard paints. We had no windows in the one office we were borrowing from another uh, fintech startup. Um, we had one conference room that we, if three people stood stood up they can fit into um but we were persistent on a consistent theme and and, it, and also leveraging existing context that david had from his decades of experience especially within the principal strategic investment arms of of uh banks and i think the last part is and alejandro i think this is a common theme you have to be kind of a little bit early you have to have a specific and strong point of view and you have to be lucky with timing and we got very lucky with timing around 20 15, the concept of blockchain technology hit Wall Street in a big way. And we were very fortunate to be there and also be there with a structure that at the time banks could get behind. Uh, and that's really was the spark for what became R3. So tell us about R3 early days, you know, and more, more importantly, yeah. I guess, for the people that are listening to get it, what ended up being the business model of R3? How are you guys making money? Yeah. So what we are today versus what we started, uh, obviously, uh, with a lot of companies, it's, it's quite different. We ended up starting the company and bootstrapping it in a fairly unique way. We did not go to the banks and look to raise a round initially. In fact, we said the opposite. We said, we think that this technology is going to be impactful to your business. We're not 100% sure why, but come on a journey with us trying to figure that out. And we need to be funded in some way, but we put a structure in front of them to say, pay a consulting fee. We called it a membership fee um, for about a year or so. And within that year, we, as the very few employees at R3, hopefully we'll build enough value that you can roll that initial fee structure into an investment round. So we bet on ourselves and bet that we would create enough value for the banks to come along in that journey. Um, it was exciting. We had monthly steering committee meetings where we would have regularly have 70, 80 bank executives across a big conference call in different rooms within New York and London trying to give them updates on what we were doing while we in the background in R3 had about eight people working for us at the time, trying to create value for the, for, for the likes of Bank of America and Barclays and, and these other large organizations. Um, but it allowed us to start building up a team. And then we, we, then we got, also got lucky, we built up a technology team. We hired a few people that were really escaping from the crypto world and started to build technology, build up what became Corda, which is our underlying uh, blockchain technology platform today. That's all started 2015, 2016, while we were trying to actually solidify R3 as a company and, and get to a, an equity funding round. And what was that like towards uh, getting to product market fit to the moment that you're like, my God, you know, like this, this has legs? It is um, a process, you know, just getting to, getting to the starting point of, of getting the funding done 
uh, was was tough. Getting those initial supporters to back us um, longer term was tough. We were we started as a bank consortium, but we're not that today. We're a software company, so making sure not only that we bring people along to on that investment, but also that we aren't forced on the first day after the investment's closed to become a utility, because that's not the purpose for our three. We're not a we're not a utility. We're we're a a software company. Uh, through that process, we had a few near death experiences trying to get that round done. Um, we also were trying to understand what is the best way we could. Uh, serve the industry from the product perspective. That's why we ended up building Corda, which is um, a different approach uh, to what other blockchains were pursuing. It was, it was trying to be built so that it could uh, preserve privacy in transactions. It can be built to, in a way that was scalable for, um, say, the US equity market to be cleared and settled on it, which is one of the projects that we work on with, with DTCC at the moment. Um, and eventually where we can be the platform where uh, a nation's currency can be issued, and that's what we're working on um, with lots of different central banks, including uh, Central Bank of the UAE is one of the uh, big projects that we're working on today. Uh, so it was really trying to get past that innovation round with early customers, get past that the innovation budget <laughs> with the banks, and get into the the true PL centers. That was really the what we needed to do as a company to to be sustainable. Hey guys, this episode is brought to you by .tech Domain. So I mean, obviously, if you're a startup or an entrepreneur, you got to be super careful on how you go about your presence and how you get the catchy domain. And that's why I recommend .tech Domains as the go-to place to really get your own domain. A good example here is Aurora.tech, which is an innovative brand that has the .tech Domain associated to it. Aurora.tech actually works at the intersection of rigorous engineering to address one of the most challenging issues of our generation, which is transforming the way that people and goods move. It is set to launch Horizon, which is Aurora's first autonomous service that's designed to bring safety, value, and efficiency to carriers and fleet owners. I've actually arranged an amazing deal for all of you, and that is you can get your one-year domain for $10 or a five-year domain for $50. Just go to go.tech forward slash dealmakers. And that's again, go.tech forward slash dealmakers to get your own. And in your case, uh, how much capital have you guys raised to date? Todd, tell us about uh, raising money. So we've only had one funding round uh, that was closed in, in May of 2017. That was a little over $120 million. Uh, 46 investors uh, on our cap table, 41 or so are our banks. As I mentioned, mainly the the, the PSI folks at, at banks, and we also have uh, Tomasek and Intel Capital and a few other uh, sort of strategic investors. I think with the Tomasek was great to have on board. Um, potentially one of their smallest checks they've ever written, but probably the same amount of due diligence they had to do <laughs> in order to get there. Uh, so it was you can imagine it was really tough because we wanted to make sure that we didn't get saddled with a bureaucratic operating agreement, a bureaucratic board structure. And we've done a lot over the years to make sure that that was the case. Our first board meeting had 31 people at the board meeting. Um, that's no way to, to try and, and manage a company longer term. And we've evolved that over time with our investors and with our board uh, to a much more functioning board now, which is fantastic. Um, but it was really tough because there was a lot of cats to herd back then. And, and you know, banks, they, you know, there are some free thinkers, but a lot of them, they, they move in a herd. And so keeping that herd together uh, was really, really critical. And 
you know, early days, we, you know, even I recall trying to get this round done and waking up one morning and seeing an article in the Wall Street Journal uh, talking about our in-process funding round where it says, you know, Goldman Sachs is pulling out of investing in R3. It, it, was, it was very bleak. We had to hold this investment together. Um, and, you know, we were able to do that because those that were there early with us were seeing the longer term picture. And, and, and even though a name such as the Goldman Sachs was potentially leaving the investment round, they wanted to stay with with R3. What was the level of communication that you needed to use in order to keep people hanging, you know, there with you? So it's, it was a combination of, um, we allowed the, those investors, those banks that were coming together, they would be organizing on their own to try and figure out how they can coordinate to help close this investment. We were having, uh, daily calls with them, um, throughout this process, but really the way that it, it ended up, uh, working was, the relationships that had been forged before this process, and especially with someone like David and being able to pick up the phone and, and, and speak to the, the, the key uh, leaders within, within the room, quote unquote, for the bank investors to really hold that together. And, and I'd say, you know, we were also fortunate to have SBI uh, in Japan be an early supporter. And they are, if you look at their portfolio, they are very, very uh, long-term thinking in their investment. Um, across the space and across fintech. So R3 is one of their portfolio uh, companies, and they were incredibly supportive to help us bridge the gap to get to that closing, um, which every company has a near-death experience, and I think it helps forge you as well is because um, you face challenges consistently as you try to build a company. And I think it was healthy in retrospect to go through that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to do it again, uh, but I'm glad that we we did. And, and uh, um you know, we it galvanized not just the company, but galvanized what became our board later. And how do you go about also managing, you know, you were alluding to it. I mean, you guys raised mm -hmm. 120 million bucks from yeah. like really big names. You know, we're talking about over 40, 40 investors here. How do you go about like investor relations, like managing <laughs> all these like super successful firms, unbelievable egos probably. How, how do you go about managing that without like, a, you know, like having that exploding. So it, it is, it's a balance. It's something we've iterated over the years. As you know, I mentioned, you know, when we first started before we closed the round, we would have these big steering committee meetings with all these people yeah. and stakeholders. We evolved that into the initial structure of having uh, a board and, and different companies rotating in and out um, along with different information rights and different sort of uh, structures. We, we ended up creating, um, uh, in effect, uh, an advisory committee across those investors to be able to give, give them information. And I think at the end of the day on the investor relations side, a lot of it is um, really the best investor relations that we can provide is by providing value to their businesses, um, getting use cases deployed within their organizations and then showing them that value back. But we recently just had um, an event here in, in New York City. I'm based in New York, um, our, our quarter day, uh, NYC. And that morning we had we held an investor breakfast where we can bring the, that community together, um, and then lead them from that investor breakfast into an event where we had um, you know Jay Clayton and Christian Carlo from uh, SEC and CFTC uh, previously served there, and, and listening to them speak and listening to our customers speak for the rest of the day on how they're using Corda, how they're working with R three. I think that's how we're looking at investor relations. It's got to be part of your overall go to market, your your overall um, really account management plan.
And and also, I mean, the last round that you guys did, you know, was quite a bit. I mean, you were alluding to what was the year that you guys closed that round? Uh, mid mid twenty seventeen, yeah. I mean, when you when you close that much money, you know, you go into this hyper growth. I mean, at least companies before the economic downturn, they were like raising, you know, that type of cash, and then they would just like go on hyper growth, crazy burn. Uh, it sounds like you guys have been very capital effective and really careful with the way that you guys have been looking at things. And also, you know, the fact that you did not go out and raise another round right away um, is really interesting and quite unique. So what drove that decision? Because I think that ultimately that that has put in you guys in a really good light because before the companies that were really good, then they would be pushed, you know, towards raising a bunch of money and then just like in that growth path, like crazy growth path. And now with the economic downturn, those companies, they're not so good anymore. So it's now like all about profitability versus growth. So it sounds like you guys have been able to really anticipate that. So what drove that thinking? So, of course, you it's hard not to look back and, and still try to think of how you can be even more disciplined as you look at uh, the overall market has turned. Right. So that's we've gone through that like like every other uh, fintech company has. Um, you know, I think scaling up is always a challenge. And we've been trying to kind of do it and rationing it up with with our customers and with the demand that we're seeing. Uh, you know, for example, early days, we we tried to stay as lean as possible and work through partners. Uh, we eventually then realized we had to build up a uh, a professional services organization. So we, we've been investing a lot in that. That's been a recent scale up for us on on um, uh, within the company. Um, but trying to trying to be following the market as much as we can um, is very, very important. I think as well, you know, one of the interesting things for R3, we've been adjacent to the crypto market for our whole existence. We're not involved in the crypto market, but we are, you know, still lumped into that. We we're very involved in central bank digital currency and, and regulated digital assets, um, but we're not part of the crypto world. So seeing how some of the crypto firms have um, gone through the different boom-bust cycles, I think has been instructive for us, where you try and smooth out the boom-bust cycle as much as possible and not get uh, similar to how you're managing your emotions, trying to manage the company and try and, and, try and smooth out that, uh, the ups and downs uh, on the growth curve. That's what we try to do. It's, and nobody's perfect, and we've definitely gotten it wrong uh, at different points in time. Um, but overall, we're really happy where we are today. So what can you tell us about the scope and size of R3 today? I mean, anything that you feel comfortable sharing, like number of employees or anything else? Yeah, so, we're, so we are uh, around 350 employees today. Uh, we, uh, I'm here, based here in New York. We're a U.S. company. We're, our largest office is in London. We have an engineering center in Dublin. And uh, we have offices in India and in Singapore as well. Um, we kind of started as a global company from day one, which is a little bit different than, than some other companies are. Um, one of the things that's been really, really exciting for us is we've started to, to win more and more business in the Middle East. Um, clearly, obviously, it's, a, it's one of the few growth markets today. Uh, and we have uh, been really, really happy to work with the likes of Central Bank of UAE. Um, you know, if you think about uh, something like that, where we're working with them, specifically on their central bank digital currency program, but they're looking at how do they create a brand new destination capital market for the region? How do they attract capital to the UAE? Um, and obviously, how are they looking to overall reshape their economy? So to be a part of that and to try and be a long-term partner with them and for them um, is really, really exciting. So we're looking at that as the next potential growth area for, for R3, for, for employees on the ground there 
Um, and we're all already starting to see the knock-on positive effects of that within the region, and then also within you know work that we're seeing and winning and with central banks and commercial banks uh, across Asia Pacific and Europe too. And you were talking about the amount of people and the different offices that you guys have. Um, you know, for the people that are just like listening to the audio, they're probably not able to see and appreciate the wonderful offices that you have right now behind you. You know, beautiful. I mm-hmm. guess, especially post-COVID, how did you guys go about in-person versus remote? I don't think any company was able to navigate that perfectly. And, and we're still trying to understand what is the right path forward. So we were pretty early to come back uh, to work, I'd say, overall. Uh, one of the things we did, especially here in the New York offices, you know, you have to create a bit of a cadence so that employees know that it makes sense for them to be in the office. So that's one thing that we have done in, you know, trying to organize around, uh, say, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, getting folks in. That's one thing. And then two is, you know, we try and spike the in-person collaboration wherever possible. As an example, in our offices last week in London, we got together a large part of our digital currency product and delivery team um, in person to be able to work through uh, work through the product roadmap, work through the existing projects that we have on the go. Because at the end of the day, um, you can't replace that with Slack and with Zoom. You have to get people together. Um, but you're trying to balance that with the ability for us now to, to understand that we can build up resources more globally and build up um, resourcing in India and, and in Dublin and not just have to, in effect, co-locate all of our engineering, for example, in London. And let's say, you know, you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of R3 is fully realized. What does that world look like? So our mission is to enable um, an open, trusted and enduring digital economy. So we feel that we are um, on the cusp of a new connected capital market. We also realize that when you're trying to create things where value can move freely, you have to enable businesses to conduct uh, their business safely. So if you think, if you reflect on some of the inspiration you get from, say, crypto and DeFi, uh, it's amazing to see how we can move to a much more always-on, 24-7 type of market. But also, and this is going back to you know, the old school, maybe trader that, that I was, markets operate around rules and they're around, around convention. And interestingly, around trust. So you can't put all of the trust just in the technology. You have to make sure that you're putting trust uh, within the ecosystem itself. So if I wake up tomorrow, the vision would be that we have been succeeding in modernizing existing market infrastructure that's working with exchanges and central uh, securities depositories and um, really the FMI space overall. Um, there's a lot to modernize there. And then two, what really excites me, this goes back to, you know, being, you know, being, being an FX trader, being uh, someone that loves how global markets operate, um, bringing forward a world where businesses and people can, can hold digital value um, that's cash-like or can, can um, really bring new assets to market in digital form and be able to understand and believe that they can trade them safely. Um, that's what we're trying to accomplish. That's what gets incredibly exciting. Collaborating with the communities around central banks as they're looking to explore central bank digital currency and what are the ways they can do that, that brings their entire economy and their entire population along on the journey. That's incredibly exciting. Now, we're obviously talking about the future here, but I want to talk about the past with a lens of reflection. 
let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time. I bring you back in time to that moment, you know, maybe where you were still, you know, in corporate, you know, America. Uh, and uh, you are now wondering after having traveled around the world and and seeing if there were greener pastures, you know, on other companies and things like that. Let's say, you know, you were now, you know, wondering, you know, what could be the next thing. And, and you're able to go back in time and have a chat with that younger thought. And you're able to give that younger thought one piece of advice before launching a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? What would be, what would I give my younger self advice on launching the company? Um, you know, I'd say in some ways, being a little bit naive is good. Um, one of the things I always think about is if you're not, if you don't look back six to 12 months and are a little embarrassed, then you're doing it wrong. Um, you know, you're, cause you're constantly improving, constantly improving, and, and you need to have a little bit of naivete to be able to jump into the arena. Um, the advice, uh, I think that the, the main advice would be when you're, you're always working in an uncertain space. The best thing you can do is to make faster and quicker decisions as you're as you're moving forward, because most decisions are reversible. And when you execute and make those decisions, you pretty quickly realize whether you've made the right one or not. Um, that would probably be the my number one piece of advice. There, as they say, well, I forget who said it, but you know the the easiest person to fool is yourself, right? So I think as you're starting a company. You know, just trying to make sure you're not rationalizing sort of decisions and making those quickly. That would be the number one piece of advice I'd give myself. I love it. So for the people that are listening, Todd, that would love to reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Yeah. So r3.com for everything R3. And you can find me uh, on Twitter at at MCDTV um, and also look me up on LinkedIn. And I would love, love, love to engage with your community. Amazing. Well, hey, Todd, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.